One of the best ways to lead well is to lead yourself first. On today's episode, the power of solitude in leadership and the history to back it up. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 308. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. And you've heard me say it many times on the show that as much as leadership is about others and how we influence others and about our organizations, it starts with ourselves. And that's one of the reasons that today's guest came onto my radar screen because he has done a tremendous amount of work on how as leaders we can really lead ourselves first. And in fact, that's the title of, almost the title of his book that's recently come out. I'm really pleased to welcome Mike Irwin to the show today. He is the CEO of the Character and Leadership Center and the founder and president of the Positivity Project, a nonprofit organization with the mission to help America's youth build stronger relationships by recognizing the character strengths in themselves and others. He is the co-author of the book, Lead Yourself First, Inspiring Leadership Through Solitude with co-author Raymond Kethledge. Mike is also a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army Reserves, assigned to the United States Military Academy at West Point, where he serves as an assistant professor in leadership and psychology. Mike, I'm so glad to welcome you to Coaching for Leaders. Thanks so much, Dave. It's really exciting to be here and looking forward to the conversation. Well, I'm really glad to have you along on the show today, Mike, because I first heard about the book from Susan Kane, and she had tweeted about it. And it wasn't the title of the book that caught my attention at first, Lead Yourself First, because I thought, well, that's, that's, that's a good thing. A lot of us know that. But it was the subtitle of the book, Inspiring Leadership Through Solitude. And as I started researching the book and just looking into your background, you've been on deployment multiple times. You were in Afghanistan. You've, you've seen action. And you talked about in some of your speeches and your public statements that you've seen people who were your same age get killed in action and that that's really created an incredible sense of urgency for you to contribute to the world. And yet, you've written a book about solitude. And I don't think a lot of people think about urgency and solitude as complementary. And I was wondering how you see it. Yeah, absolutely. So it's definitely a, a very interesting question because that is absolutely true. When, once you've experienced uh, combat, and, and I was just an, an intelligence officer, so I was not on the front lines, but certainly supported men and women who were. And that definitely gives you that sense of urgency for life when you come home. And uh, when you look at solitude, it's something, and this is one of the things that we discussed with Brene Brown, one of the people that we interviewed for the book, was this idea of, you know, is solitude something that can, can fortify your leadership, you know, or is it something that you should feel guilty about taking? And, and her argument was, and, and I fully agree, that in many ways, leading yourself first and stepping back and spending and carving out that time in solitude becomes critical for a leader to ensure that they are living their life, not just with urgency, but that they're doing so in the right place. And that's one of the things we talk about in the book is the importance of solitude to, you know, to establish clarity uh, in your life and especially in the leadership role that you fill. So that's really where I see the role of solitude fortifying that sense of urgency. It makes sure that I'm aligning all my efforts as a leader and 
doing the very best that I can and running as hard as I can in the lanes I'm supposed to be in. And I think if you're not careful in the world today with all the noise and all the things going on, you might find yourself in the wrong lane and you might find yourself climbing that wrong ladder. And it really becomes those moments of solitude that make sure that you're on that right track. I can only imagine what it is like to be on active duty in a foreign theater um, in a place like Afghanistan at the time you were there. Incredible complexity, incredible amount of conversation, dialogue, chaos going on around you. How did you find solitude in an environment like that? So if you look at my role as an intelligence officer, I was a captain back in Afghanistan in 2006 to 2009. I was there twice for a total of about 15 months. And the amount of information coming in via signals intelligence and human intelligence and all the reporting that was coming in across half of the theater, which is ultimately what the unit that I was assigned to was responsible for, there was just an incredible volume of information that came through my computer and into my brain every single day. And it was absolutely critical that I found those pockets of time, uh, whether it was by going to the gym or going for a run on my own or sometimes just going for a walk out around the base on my own, that gave me that capacity to sift through and to make sense of a lot of the information. So absolutely was critical. At the same time, I also spent hours and hours every day just reading and looking at, at that information coming in and thinking hard about everything that I was think, uh, processing and everything that was you know, coming across my computer screen. So it was one of those things where solitude really served multiple purposes. One, it helped to, to ground me and give me that space to settle my brain down, but at the same time, it was also that, that space where I did probably the hardest and the most intense thinking of my life, uh, you know, when I was a captain over there because of the stakes were so high and there was so much going on. So it really served both of those purposes. Uh, solitude did both the focus on making sense of everything and at the same time stepping back and, and then giving my brain the space to quiet down. I'm struck by the fact that most leaders don't work that way. And I think um, unless they've been in a situation like you've been in where you really developed that skill and that habit of really finding solitude, for folks who haven't done that, how, why is it so critical? You mentioned it was critical to your work. What is it about solitude that allowed, that allowed the, the, the right information, the right decisions to come across for you? Yeah, so I think this really cuts to the core of the book's thesis and and really, uh, this process was about a seven-year journey that Ray and I were on. We interviewed tons of people, lots of great leaders, uh, lots of leaders that you've never heard of, but also did a lot of reading of historical leaders. And in that process, what emerged was there's essentially four major ways that solitude benefits leaders. And, and I think that really all four of these, I saw the benefits of them myself in Afghanistan, but also in various other leadership components of my life uh, ever since then in the nonprofit sector, in the military, and you know, even in, in my family. So th those four sections, and that's the way that the book Lead Yourself First is organized, um, but it's clarity. So you establish clarity. Solitude is that place where you do that intense thinking. Ultimately, we, what we argue, and I think most people would agree with, is that you can't really do the most intense thinking that your brain is capable of you know, with a whole bunch of other stuff going on around you, you need that silence, you need that space. At the same time, the other side of that coin is a more delicate side, which is intuition, right? Which is this idea of how can you quiet your brain down so that you can listen to your intuition and to your instincts. So that's kind of like 1A and 1B. The second part is 
creativity, connecting the dots and coming up with ideas outside the box. So solitude was a absolutely essential component for me to be able to tap into creative solutions as a leader, not just in Iraq and Afghanistan, but also, again, back here. The third part is moral courage. So when you're going to make a difficult decision, in some cases, in my instance, when I was in Afghanistan, I recommended to the generals that we go forward with this major operation in the Helmand province and knowing very well that by advocating for that, that some Green Berets in the unit that I was in, you know, might not make it back. And, and so how do you have the mor- and establish the moral courage as a leader to make difficult decisions, ones that you know that could cause some real uh, life-changing uh, effects for, for people that are impacted by your leadership decision? Then the last part is emotional balance. And solitude really fortifies emotional balance. Um, it gives you that space to quiet the brain down. Solitude often is that space now, those really are the four ways that through all the research and all the discussions that we have with so many great leaders that emerged through our trend analysis of the various ways that solitude benefited leaders. And, and that certainly is something that Ray and I both experienced in our own leadership lives. And what's really great about the book is um, it's, it's, it's not really about you or Ray at all. It's about uh, right. the historical figures and some current figures too, uh, leaders who have utilized solitude really successfully, including some that I don't think that a lot of us would necessarily think about as, as being the first people that would utilize solitude. And I thought it'd be fun for us to maybe examine a couple of these examples um, from, from all different walks of life. And one of the leaders you profile at the very beginning of the book is General Dwight Eisenhower and how he utilized solitude at some very key decision points. Uh, tell me more about, uh, about his, his journey with solitude. Yeah. So, so General Eisenhower is a fascinating story. If you're a history person, you might have read up on this and know this, but he had been promoted, I think, all the way up to Fulbright Colonel coming out of World War One because he was in the West Point uh, class of 1915, and then basically was reverted back in rank. And he was a lieutenant colonel, which is, now granted, I'm in the Army Reserves, but the rank that I hold now, he was a lieutenant colonel until March 13th, 1941, which means that he went from an 05 to an 010, right, the Supreme Allied Commander, in, in about three years. So when you look at his journey, it's, it's quite fascinating. He was the, the lead military commander in Northern Africa in 1942, in Italy in 1943, and, and of course for the D-Day invasion, Operation Overlord, and everything that followed after that before going on to become president. But when you look at him, it was this consistent practice that even as an extreme extrovert, someone who in, in part got the job to be Supreme Allied Commander because of his political skills and his ability to build relationships with people across different cultures and, and to be able to manage egos like Patton you know, and, and everything. But ultimately, it was this practice that he had that he really stuck to where he would step back, he would write about how frustrated he was by constantly being stuck in meetings and constantly having people requesting his time because it didn't give him the time and space to think. So what he did a lot was he would write memorandums, basically letters to himself or to his wife. And he would, in these letters, they weren't really intended for anybody to read. It wasn't like somebody on his staff was there to read them. He wrote them for his own benefit. And in the process of spending that time in solitude, he ensured that he, that he had a structured way to flesh out his ideas and that he could put them down on paper and then see them more clearly. So when it came time to make those big decisions, he had already thought about them in a very explicit and deliberate way. 
and he had a process for doing it. And and I was really fascinated by the um, the events you talk about it leading up to D Day in the book, and how Eisenhower then utilized that that structure that he had ingrained in himself over a course of years. And went back to doing that exact same thing in the in the hours leading up to D Day with all the major decisions that surrounded that. It's really just an incredible, uh, it's an incredible story, especially from someone who is very extroverted. Yeah, and this really speaks to that core part of the message, Dave. That while people who are more introverted certainly, I think they feel more inclined to engage in solitude and to step back from all the stimuli and all the noise. This is also something that we see that people who are big extroverts as well can really benefit from the solitude. You know, myself, I'm I'm a big extrovert myself, and and I've seen this benefit repeatedly in my own life. I do sometimes, even as someone who's been researching and helping to write this book for seven years, that sometimes in the world today does not come easy uh, with the social media and email and everything that's going on in our lives. It becomes sometimes very challenging. My son and I were on a camping trip recently, and we went to a place that was completely off the grid, didn't have cell phone service. And it's it's a little disorienting, you know, when you first get to an environment like that. And then after a day or two, I didn't want to leave. <laughs> and I've had sure. that experience many times in going out camping or going somewhere where there wasn't service. But but to, to what you mentioned, it's so challenging these days. And I I think that that's part of what we can talk about, some of the, the practical ways we can get beyond this. Um, uh, but before we even get to that, I, I, I want to ask you too about Abraham Lincoln, uh, obviously very in a lot of ways very different leader than Eisenhower, but utilized uh, some of the same skills. And you talk in the book about the aftermath of the Battle of Gettysburg in the U.S. Civil War, and I think that's also a really fascinating story. Uh, and I was wondering if you could tell me more about how Lincoln leveraged solitude. So Abraham Lincoln, as many people are probably familiar with his journey, as most presidential historians sort of rank him as the clear, uh, clear-cut clear choice for the number one president in our history, um, a guy who failed many, many times repeatedly and many things in his life, and then eventually becomes you know, the president of the United States. Most people who know about the Civil War know about the various generals who were in charge of the Union Army who failed repeatedly to be successful. Obviously, the Confederate forces had driven far north into Pennsylvania before eventually starting to turn the tide in 1863. And finally, after the Battle of Gettysburg, and you know, General Lee made the pretty big mistake with Pickett's charge, and then they started to retrograde, Lincoln was very excited. He thought that, wow, we have him on the run now, and, and we can really start to hopefully end this. And then just became increasingly frustrated with General Meade, because once again, when they had them, uh, Lee and the Confederate Army on the ropes, pinned up against the river, they, they failed to take the aggressive action that they needed to to, you know, to decimate the force. And so, once again, in a very similar way to Eisenhower, uh, Lincoln wrote letters. Uh, and in this case here, he wrote a letter, never sent it to anybody. It was uncovered you know, later uh, in life. But it was a letter that he wrote that essentially spelled out his frustrations with general need. And uh, in many ways, I, I liken it today to, to writing an email you know, to somebody who uh, might offend you or might do something that makes you mad and you write that email, but you know, before you hit send, you know, you might want to just put that into the draft folder and come back and revisit it a day later and see if you really need to send it. And what you find is that most of the times you don't. And that's how Lincoln was. He wrote this letter to, to General Meade and never sent it to him. But it helped him to, you know, establish a little bit of catharsis to to really understand uh, his own thoughts, his own emotions and his own frustrations. And as a leader, to get those down on paper so that he was able to 
step back and then think more clearly. Uh, and as we talked about in the book, a few days later, he was you know, his emotions had gone from you know really frustrated and sad to to returning back to his typical leadership style. So again, there's something really powerful about uh, writing down your thoughts and getting your emotions out on paper, but not actually pushing them forward to the people that you lead. A lot of us have heard about the power of journaling uh, for many years, and uh, and I, I do sense that there's a thread in the book of some of the figures talked about in taking the time to write. Um, it, it, what did you uncover in your research uh, with Ray of looking through all these all these different leaders and and how writing or journaling played a role in their uh, their relationship with solitude? Yeah, so I think that when you think about solitary acts, you can think about things like hiking and you know, going off the grid. You can also think about, in a very quiet place, reading or writing. I think that writing is perhaps one of the most solitary acts that a, that a leader can perform. I'm guessing that every single person who's listening to this episode here has written probably dozens, if not hundreds, of longer articles or bigger pieces in their life. And if you've done that, then you know how difficult it is, and it is truly a solitary act. And, and yes, you can collaborate with other people, and you can do things like that. But at the end of the day, writing is a very solitary act. Speaking of amazing writers, one of the leaders who's profiled in the book is Martin Luther King Jr. And you talk about the events leading, you know, leading up to the Montgomery bus boycott and the days and weeks after Rosa Parks' first act. And I obviously was very naive in learning about more details about the story. I knew King was very much involved in this, uh, but I didn't realize the hesitancy that he had early on, especially in the opening weeks of this major event in American history. And he also found clarity in a moment of solitude, obviously a very extroverted person, but um, tell me more about how how this played out for him. Yeah, Martin Luther King Jr., the story, as we dug into this, really fascinated both of us and was quite inspiring. When you, when you think about it, you know, so most people know some of the background on him that he went to Moorhead college in Atlanta, all right? but he went up to Boston University um, for his doctorate. So he reported down to Montgomery, Alabama at the young age of 25, and he is not born and raised and from Montgomery. And again, he shows up and then Rosa Parks in early December of 1955 and refuses to give up her seat you know, to a white man. And then you know, the African-American community there really rallied around that and boycotted in response. And as you see in this part of the book, it's just a really inspiring story because at the beginning of it, as you just said, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. was not at all prepared to take a leadership role. He looked around at the ministers who were twice his age, who were born and raised and, and knew Montgomery far better than he did. But in, you know, those older ministers, in King, they saw someone who had the potential to be the leader and someone who was younger, who had the energy, who was a great orator, but also was the kind of person that could, um, could sit down with people and in a very level-headed way have conversations with the people and to represent the people of you know, the African-American community of Montgomery. So it was a really fascinating thing to, to look through, and the fact that he did not, it's not like he went there saying, oh, I can't wait to take this mantle of leadership up. And, and then, of course, as we talk about when he was arrested and as things continued to develop and the boycott went, in, went on and on, and then, of course, he receives the death threat, you know, late at night after he was released from prison. I mean, can you imagine that being 25 years old, you know, in a state that you've barely lived in for, you know, a year, and you get the call that 
you've got three days to get out of here or we're going to blow your brains out and burn your house down. You know, and, and then he sits down and capitalizes you know, on this opportunity of emotional duress and says, wow, what am I going to do here? Is this cause, is it worth possibly my own life and the life of my family? Uh, certainly the stress that it's already brought. And at this point, this is late January 1956, so over the past six, seven weeks, you know, when he sits down and engages in that solitude, in that reflection, in that prayer, in that thought, you know, and by the time he rises from the table into the wee hours of the morning, you know, he never lost his courage from there moving forward. So it's just an incredibly inspiring story to see the role that solitude played in his own leadership journey, which, of course, as everyone knows, eventually did cost him his life um, 13 years later. And I think it's a really it's a it's a really amazing example of how solitude is used differently by lots of different leaders. Of sometimes it's solitude practices over time, and in this case, a leader utilizing solitude and and really over the course of a single evening into the next morning of of and he talked about that. I, I understand throughout the rest of his life of that being a defining moment that evening of him sitting down at he the did. kitchen table and rising up and like you said, never looked back after that. And yet it was that time of solitude that really clarified his thinking and his commitment to his faith and, and all the things that we know him for today. And it's just it's just fascinating. And I appreciate you sharing all these examples. And, I, and I'm also conscious of the fact, you know, we hear these great names like Eisenhower and Lincoln and Martin Luther King. You talked about Aung San Suu Kyi in the, in the book and, um, and Brené Brown and so some of the leaders we know of today as well, too. And there's, I think, this this tendency of like us to look at that and like, okay, these are these great leaders. They've they've made the time for this. How can I do that practically? And I'm curious, as you've worked with leaders and you've coached people, Mike, what have you seen that's been helpful for leaders just to begin to take the first step to start to utilize solitude on a practical level? So, so the first thing that I see is that some leaders do this already right now, Dave. Uh, some leaders have made it a part of just who they are and they've had the discipline to stick to it. And to those, I think, who have been able to do that, you know, hats off to them because, you know, it has really required a lot of discipline with all the ways that the world has changed over the past 10 to 15 years. When you think about the volume of meetings and how much it's gone up, the amount of email that comes in and out of our inboxes every day, the amount of social media and the distractions, sort of the text messaging, uh, there's just so many different inputs out there today that to really practice it requires a delib- deliberate act of, um, you know, uh, a deliberate decision-making process. So uh, I would say that, you know, for a lot of people out there, though, however, uh, I think a majority of, of leaders fall into this category. They've struggled. They have struggled with the information overload of the world. They've struggled with the pace of life. Uh, the fact is that you're sort of never, and potentially never off the clock, if you, if you will, because you can be checking your email at home at midnight or at five o'clock in the morning. You can be thinking about a problem at work that you're, as a leader, are dealing with, you know, um, late into the night. And so because of that, you know, it is definitely something that I think a lot of leader, leaders have really struggled with. So the first thing that we allude to in the book is, you know, you don't have to be Henry David Thoreau, right? We are not advocating for people to not respond to their emails and just sit on emails for, for weeks at a time or for people to get off of social media because social media, it's a part of leadership. It's a part of life in, in our world today. Um, we are saying that it's important to make sure that you carve out the time and you realize that practicing solitude and thinking hard for yourself and giving yourself that space is instrumental. And so 
you've got to find those pockets of time. So that's a long-winded way of saying start small. Um, you can find these pockets of 10 to 15 minutes here and there. When you're driving into work or driving home at the end of the day, you don't necessarily always need to have the radio on, right? You can sometimes turn it off and just drive home in quiet. There's other times when you can practice solitude, you know, in your personal life, whether it's mowing the lawn or picking weeds or going for a walk. Um, and then obviously at work during the day, you can do some very simple things like go to lunch on your own. Um, you know, leave your phone behind and just go out and grab lunch and use that time to free think or to think hard about a challenge or about a meeting that you have coming up later that afternoon that, you know, no one has really sort of come up with a solution yet to a problem that you're facing or shut the door and spend 15 or 20 minutes just quietly on your own thinking. So the reality is, while there is a lot of meetings, while there is a lot of inputs, it does, it simply in many cases just requires the discipline to put some white space on your calendar and then follow through with it, which that's the whole point of the book is not to sit there and argue with data that this is why you should do it, but it's to inspire people to do it. Because I think that almost all listeners would agree that this is something that we intuitively get. You know, most people that I talk to say the same thing you did, which is after those first couple of days, it's really, you know, it's tough in those first you know, day or two when you break away from all the inputs, but then it's just so refreshing because it frees up your mind. Um, and so that's the intent of the book is to inspire leaders to make this a priority because once you do, then you see the benefits that you reap from it, and then you continue to commit to the process. Well, you've already got one convert for sure, because as I was reading this book over the last week, I was I was thinking about one of the things you just mentioned as far as putting down the phone and um, between six and eight in the evenings, I used to have this practice that I would leave my phone in my office when I was uh, you know, spending dinner time and getting the kids to bed and all that. And somehow I got out of the habit of that doing that a year or two ago. And I just started doing that again recently. And I found it, it really is just so different of even if you don't ever look at the phone, <laughs> just the yep. feeling of just being disconnected. I mean, it really does change my orientation of how I interact with family and quiet time and engagement and relationships. And and it is it is a thing that I think most of us can find time to do, um, you know, once a day, or maybe even it starts with once a week. And 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 that's actually leads me to a question on on practicality. I was curious about Mike because I, I you you share a lot of examples in the book, and I and you you share a lot of like there's not like one right way to do this. There's you know there's leaders who have found one way to do this and leaders have found a different way to do it. And one of the interesting distinctions I found, and I was just curious how you, what you guys had found in your research was um, some leaders talk about the process of solitude as really active productivity of like sitting down and really working hard to think on something. Um, and then uh, at least one other example, the book, I remember someone mentioning, you know, they just, they just want to go out for a run and not have anything, no music, nothing. And just maybe they start thinking about something, but just go and see what happens. And I'm, yep. I'm kind of curious, how do you, is, is there a, a way that's an indicator of which way to approach that or kind of trial and error for each one of us or different, or different situations? Of how, what have you seen work for people? Yeah, great question. I, I think that it is trial and error for each of us as individuals. And I think, frankly, sometimes that it is, the answer is A and B, right? So the answer is sometimes you need solitude to do that really heavy lifting and that hard thinking. And sometimes the answer is you need to break away from all the noise and all the pressure on your brain so that you can simply quiet the mind and then tap into your intuition or to rejuvenate your mind so that some creative ideas emerge and, and are percolating in your brain on that walk or on that run or in that period of solitude. So 
you know, for me, I alluded to this before when I was in Afghanistan. I, again, I practice it in both ways. I have a lot of solitude to think really hard about all of the information in front of me. At the same time, found those opportunities to disengage from it by going on runs, by going on walks, where I didn't have a specific thing that I necessarily thought about. And so I think the answer is that if you practice it in, in each way, you're going to find benefits. And the question is, what situation and what does the situation demand you know, at that given time? And I think that different situations, pending your leadership challenges in front of you, will require different responses in terms of how you leverage solitude. I'm thinking about what uh, David Allen said when he came on the show, Mike, and your, your response in here's here's this guy who's the you know probably the world's guru on productivity and i remember when he was on the show talking about the importance of daydreaming and yep. taking time to create space and you know if boy if someone like david allen is advocating for that i think that's just a, such a it's such a validation for everything you're saying of this importance of if we really want to be effective and productive and helpful to organizations we need to also take that time to give ourselves the space to decompress or to think actively about something like you pointed out, you know, depending on the situation. I just love the way of looking at that. I, yeah, I, and, and just to unpack that a little bit further, I would say, you know, whether or not Abraham Lincoln was the one who actually said it or not, I mean, I know he's the one who's given credit. The idea if I had eight hours to chop down a tree, I'd spend the first six hours sharpening the axe. I think that in many ways is so true for leaders as you think about how you spend your time as a leader because you need to spend a lot of your time really sharpening your own acts and, and therefore you're making better decisions that have an impact on other people. And that's really how I view this is that when you lead yourself first, when you practice solitude and, and whether you're doing it to do the heavy thinking and, the, and that, that big hard thought, or when you're doing it to, you know, to just sort of step back from all of the inputs and allow things to calm down either way, you know, you are at the end of it, you're benefiting your leadership decision-making process, which hopefully has a positive effect on other people. It also allows you to show up better and more fully and to be more present with other people because, once again, you've given yourself that space and time. And so it may not feel like, as a leader, that you have that time on your calendar to do it, but I think what most leaders find who practice this, and certainly this is what we saw in our research and heard from lots of leaders, is when leaders do practice it, they're just often thinking so much more clearly and they're just more effective as leaders and better at building relationships with people and they show up better because of the fact that they're leading themselves first. Yeah, and as you said earlier, there's something intuitive about this concept of solitude that a lot of us recognize and yet we don't take that first step. And if you're looking for the inspiration to take the first step, I think you'll find that this book and the research you've both done, Mike, is going to really be a good starting point for that. So uh, I certainly encourage folks to to check out the book. And I know, Mike, you also have a bunch of resources on your website that'll be helpful for folks. Would, would you tell us where to go if those of us who want to track down some more information on this? Absolutely. So yes, you can go to characterleadership.center, uh, and that's the website. You know, uh, I mentioned before I'm the CEO of the Character and Leadership Center, and that's where uh, a lot of the resources talk about this and also how this integrates into positive psychology, which is what I studied in grad school. So um, that, and, and yeah, I'm on social media. As mentioned before, to be clear, I, I don't think that social media and solitude are mutually exclusive, and that to practice solitude, therefore, you, you, you can't be on social media. I think you can do both. The question just becomes, how are you engaging on that social media? And, and again, I tend to be very deliberate in that way. And I have sort of led myself first, if you will, 
in terms of coming up with my own personal engagement strategy, what platforms I'm on, um, and how I use it. But absolutely, you can just find more information at characterleadership.center. And obviously, uh, the book's available at bookstores and on Amazon, and I'm really excited to hear what people think about it. Mike, I uh, really appreciate all the resources. We're going to link up to it in the weekly leadership guide for those of you who get it every Wednesday. So uh, all of those links will be in there as well. Uh, Mike, one other question I wanted to ask you before we wrap up. Uh, we talk a lot about failure in our community of leaders and the importance of learning from failure. And, uh, and we try to have an active dialogue about that just as much as we do about achievements. And I'm curious, as you look back on your career or, or maybe even in your personal life, what's a time that you've had a failure as a leader that has really helped you to learn to be more effective? Oh, that's a good one. And, and I, first of all, I totally agree that it's so critical to look at successes and failures. We all know that we often grow more from our, our failures and our setbacks than we do from our successes. You know, I think for me, you know, when, when I look at my leadership career, you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy with how I've done in, in many arenas. You know, especially with the stakes being so high in the military, you know, well, I was deployed in Iraq and Afghanistan. But as I, I look at my leadership career, as it kind of went off into the nonprofit sector, and you know, I founded this nonprofit called Team Red, White, and Blue, and, and we're now 130,000 members, 235 chapters across the United States, and we help military veterans to reintegrate and to transition from active duty to civilian life. And you know, I think for me. You know, there was a point in time of the organization's growth where, you know, as we were becoming very successful and starting to have this really big impact on people's lives, I was not able to keep up with the pace because I was still actually on active duty. And there was a time when, as a leader, I should have stepped back more deliberately and more clearly than I did. You know, and that caused just some challenges for the organization. And it was something as I look back that I, I don't call it this outright failure, but it certainly was an opportunity that if I went backwards, I, I would have done differently. Um, and I think it's something that a lot of leaders really grapple with is, you know, I've learned that I'm a pretty good startup guy, getting an organization up and running and off the ground. And there's a certain period of in an organization's trajectory, maybe four years, three, three four, five years in growth where, you, know, you really do need to start instituting processes and start doing things um, with more rigor. That's just not my strength that I've learned. And so in the future, I won't you know, make some of those you know, same mistakes. But um, as I look back at it, that was definitely one that, again, there's no catastrophic loss of life or uh, anything like that, but certainly I would have done it differently. And, and I think, frankly, that because it happened while I was researching and, and, and working on this book with Ray, it was a period of that leadership development experience for me that I wasn't, you know, engaged on the solitude piece. I, I had multiple kids over a couple of years and, you know, I was moving, you know, from one army base to the next and, you know, the, the pace of life kind of caught up with me and I didn't spend that time in solitude to be more reflective and be deliberate. And that was something where I really wished that I had to practice that, some of that advice that, you know, I've you know, have worked with Ray on this book on because I really feel that had I done that, it would have prevented that failure and, and that setback that, um, you know, that I then eventually you know, caused you know, within the organization. 
Mike, I really appreciate you mentioning that. And I'm struck by how many times, not only my own experience, but many of the guests who come on the show, you know, the very thing that we advocate for in the world we're working on sometimes is the thing we most struggle with ourselves and we catch ourselves not doing as effectively. So uh, thanks for, for mentioning that. And, uh, and also, uh, I'm so glad you mentioned Team Red, White, and Blue. We didn't mention that in our conversation. Uh, such important work you're doing. We did an episode earlier this year on helping leaders to help uh, veterans come into their organizations to um, help veterans to, uh, to to assimilate more into the organization and and, uh, and come back to civilian life. And so we're going to add that to our list of resources and we'll link back to that episode as well. So Mike, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate your wisdom. I appreciate the work you've done with this book and uh, thanks so much for your service to our country as well. Absolutely, Dave. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to share some thoughts today and look forward to continuing to see how the book resonates with people out there you know, the initial feedback so far has been, has been really good and very exciting to hear that from people. And hopefully more and more people uh, engage with it and are inspired um, by the message. So thanks again for the opportunity to share some more thoughts with your community. Mike Irwin is the co-author of the book, Lead Yourself First, Inspiring Leadership Through Solitude. Thanks again, Mike. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Mike. Hey, if you found this conversation intriguing today, I challenge you to do what I'm doing, which is to start small. I'm setting aside my smartphone for a couple hours in the evening every day as a beginning point. And yeah, you can go out and <laughs> go on a week-long silent leadership retreat, I suppose, if you want to, and you've got the time and the resources to do it. Most of us don't. And so starting small is uh, the place to see if this works for you. And if it does, then you can make the choice to do more and to integrate it in your leadership practice. I'm going to be doing more of this in the next quarter and looking for those times to embrace solitude in a way that will be helpful to me. And I hope this is helpful to you as well. And speaking of helpful, I hope that if you found this conversation valuable today and if you found recent episodes valuable, if you haven't already, that you will take a moment to activate your free membership on the Coaching for Leaders website. Absolutely free. You can get access to it almost immediately. And when you get on the free membership, you're going to get access right away to my free 10-day audio course titled 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead. 10 minutes a day for 10 days, immediate practical actions that will help you to become a better leader. I've taken the best lessons of the last six years from this show, uh, combined them down and, and distilled them down really into 10-minute segments for 10 days, I think you will find that it'll not only inspire you to do more, but also be a great orientation to many of the conversations we've had on the show over the last six years. You can access all of that by going to coachingforleaders.com. In addition, there's a ton of other resources on the free membership. The monthly member cast is there. There's a bunch of episodes up, more coming in the very near future. There's the entire podcast library, searchable by topic, and there's also a bunch more on the membership portal. So again, coachingforleaders.com is where to go. And uh, one of the things that's really important to me and our listener community is to continually build community amongst our listeners. And I've been hosting several meetups over this summer. I was just in Denver recently, and I'm going to be here in Orange County coming up on August 17th, the evening of August 17th, 2017. If you are in Southern California, or if you happen to be in Southern California on that evening, I would love to meet you. And more importantly, I'd love to introduce you to other Coaching for Leaders listeners here in the local area. So you build community and network with other folks who also care about leadership and like you are growing and listening to shows like this that will help 
you to become a more effective leader. If you're interested in doing that, uh, also a free event, just go over to coachingforleaders.com slash Orange County, all one word that'll give you everything you need to know about being uh, here in Costa Mesa the evening of August 17th, 2017. Again, coachingforleaders.com slash Orange County. For those of you who are local, watch for it in the weekly leadership guide as well. And uh, some related episodes to today's conversation, episode 184. I encourage you to go back and check out my conversation with David Allen. He's the author of Getting Things Done. It is the seminal book on productivity that's uh, really over the last decade. So many uh, of us use David Allen's system. I use so many elements of it in my regular practice. And when David was on the show, we talked about some of the key elements of getting things done. But we also talked about what are some of the common challenges folks have with it. And we fielded questions from the listening audience. A lot of wise things David said, including the importance of daydreaming and taking time away. Episode 184 is the one to check out for that. Also, uh, an important lesson on personal leadership was in episode 196, Marshall Goldsmith, top executive coach in the world on triggers, how to create behavior that lasts. That was a conversation for leaders about themselves. And so if you are looking for ways to become more effective in your own behavior in order to lead others more effectively, definitely check out episode number 196 with Marshall Goldsmith. I know you'll walk away with something that's of value from that conversation. And also episode 211, how to be present and productive. Jeremy Kubitschek was on the show talking about the five different gears a beautiful model that him and his team have created around how we interact with others. And guess what? One of the gears is solitude, taking the time to recharge. Uh, had so many people reach out to me over the last year or so since that episode has aired and asking for the the reference to that show and wanting to hear it again. If you haven't heard that episode and you're looking for something simple that you can do in order to get your mind set in different places during the day that will help you to connect well with others, but also at the same place, embrace solitude. Episode 211, really effective way to do that. And then finally, here, here's one more for this week. Episode 214, Stop Worrying and Start Living. That is inspired from Dale Carnegie's book of almost the same name, How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. And that episode I went through some of the key principles that I've taken from that book over the years that have helped me to combat stress and worry. If you have not picked up Dale Carnegie's book called How to Stop Worrying and Start Living and you're dealing with stress and worry in a substantial way right now, I absolutely recommend the book. Anytime I've ever picked it up in my life, uh, I have found something that's been so helpful to me. It is one of those books you can literally open up, turn to just about any page, and you will find something that will be helpful to you. So uh, check that out, episode 214, if that's of interest to you. All of those episodes you can reach by going to coachingforleaders.com slash the episode number. And of course, if you're a free member, you can go into the membership portal and search by topic for any of those episodes, as well as the other 300 plus episodes in the library. Next week, Bonnie and I are back for our monthly Q&A show. We take questions from the community the first Monday of every month. I hope you'll submit your question for consideration next week or maybe for the first Q&A show on the first Monday of a future month. If you've got a question for us about leadership, send it in. Coachingforleaders.com slash feedback is where to go. Have a fabulous week, and I look forward to speaking with you and Bonnie next Monday. Take care.